0: Wayne Grudem looms large among American evangelicals. The author of over 25 books, he is perhaps best known for his systematic theology, which has been used in thousands of classrooms around the world and sold over 800,000 copies since it was first published in 1994. But before Wayne was a bestselling author and a respected theologian, he was just a kid from a small town in Wisconsin who loved reading the Bible. In this special interview, Wayne and I talk about his life as a child and young adult, how he met his wife, and his journey to become one of the most influential American theologians of his generation. He also reflects on his work on the ESV Translation Oversight Committee and his role as General Editor of the landmark ESV Study Bible. Wayne currently serves as a Distinguished Research Professor of Theology and Biblical Studies at Phoenix Seminary and is the author of numerous books with Crossway, including Christian Ethics, The Poverty of Nations, and Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. Let's get started. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to talk. Uh, so I want to talk today just about your life, your ministry, and in particular, uh, the, the big role that you've played at Crossway over the years and some really key things that you've been a part of with us. But maybe just to start, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your own story and how you came to be the theologian, the scholar, the the teacher that you are known as today. What was your home life like growing up? Did you grow up in a Christian family with Christian parents?
1: Yes, I did. Um, I grew up in a small town in northern Wisconsin called Jim Falls. (laughs) Jim Falls? Jim Falls. (laughs) Not Jim's Falls, Jim Falls. Uh, I don't know quite why, but that's what it was named. It had 286 people. Oh, so you're real small? Very small, yeah. Um, first grade was the one row in the last room, second grade was the next row, <laughs> third grade was the next row, and fourth grade was the next row. After that, you go to the other room fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade were in the, <laughs> in the second room. I went there seven years hmm. through seventh grade. Um, it was a predominantly Roman Catholic community. Most all my friends were Roman Catholic.
0: But you, you weren't?
1: No, uh, we drove to Eau Claire a half hour away for a Baptist church.
0: Oh, I was just in Eau Claire, actually. Really? Uh, broke down my car in Eau Claire and really? stayed the night. Yes. Really? <laughs> yep, just this last weekend.
1: Well, when I was 13, my parents moved us to Eau Claire. Mm. Even though my dad's job was in Jim Falls, he was part owner of a creamery there. Uh, a dairy, like a dairy creamery. Yeah, they made butter and powdered milk. Oh, ah, wow! Um, so,
0: coming from a, a small community like that, yeah, uh, in in the the cold north of Wisconsin, right? Uh, how did you first? Do you remember first getting developing a passion for theology, for studying theology? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I for a long time for a long time thought that my. Christian life began at age 12 when I had prayed with my mother to uh, trust in Christ as my Savior. Mm. And then at 13, at a Billy Graham crusade in Minneapolis, I went forward as a recommitment of my life. And those were significant times. Mm. But now, Matt, looking back on my childhood, I loved to sing hymns. I loved to be in church. I loved to. I, I, I can remember myself on the playground playing baseball or playing soccer or touch football no, it wasn't touched, it was tackled in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can remember myself riding bike and play, praying regularly, just silently on the playground. And I love to read my Bible. From a very early age, early elementary age, And those are things that I look back on now as evidence of genuine conversion prior to age 12. Hmm. So I don't know when I trusted in Christ, but it was very early.
0: Yeah, very early. So beyond, obviously, God's own work in your heart to to draw that uh, out of you, were there things that your parents did or others in your church that kind of had the influence on you to to help instill a love for Scripture?
1: Uh, The example of my parents who would read a chapter from the Bible every night before they went to sleep. To to you or just to, to no for to themselves? each other, but I knew they were doing it. Mm. Occasionally, we'd sit, but usually after the children went to bed. Mm. And um, the influence of my pastor, who believed the Bible, everything he taught came from the Bible, and it was his example was significant. Mm. But when I was thirteen, Matt, or fourteen, I don't know which, he taught our pastor at the Baptist church taught a junior high. Class on Bible doctrine, and they had a little book called Baptist Beliefs by E.Y. Mullins, and I absolutely loved it. I couldn't, I just couldn't get over the wonder and amazement that you could tell what the whole Bible said about God's omnipotence or omnipresence Mm. or omniscience
0: or the Trinity. That someone had done that work to kind of distill it down?
1: Yes, it was a little hundred, 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 fifty page book, E.Y. Mullins, Baptist Beliefs. I still have it. I still have my pencil notes in the margin. Oh,
0: wow, from when you were a kid.
1: Yeah. Now, um, I learned later, looking back on Baptist history, he uh, strayed from inerrancy, and he wasn't completely conservative in all his beliefs. He's part of this abandonment of inerrancy that was part of the Southern Baptist Convention for a number of years uh, before the conservative resurgence. Uh, But it still was, for the most part, very clear evangelical Protestant theology, Yeah. and I just was fascinated by it.
0: So you maybe couldn't recommend it today, but it nevertheless played a role in in your own life.
1: Right. I have a little book called Christian Beliefs that would be a good substitute for it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too much. We'll get back to uh, the publication of your systematic theology, which is, uh, I don't know all the stats, but uh, I know it's is one of the best-selling, most well-known systematic theologies in the English language in the world. Yeah. Uh, and do, do you can you think of, was there anything in your mind from that experience as a kid with this the smaller little theology book that kind of was impacting how you were approaching writing your systematic theology?
1: Let's see. I grew up in this Baptist church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Went off to college and was active in the Christian Fellowship group at Harvard when I was an undergraduate and became president of that group. And I went to college with the intention of graduating from college, going to law school, and then going into politics. Mm. I was president of the Young Republicans in my high school. I was president of the student council in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So
0: your interest in politics starts very early.
1: Yeah, earlier than uh, high school, because at 12 years old, in 1960, I, as a 12-year-old, campaigned for Richard Nixon against John F. Kennedy. Mm. But it was in a very strongly Catholic town, and all my friends were Kennedy supporters. (laughs) You are pushing against the tide. (laughs) I I was deeply disappointed. (laughs) Well, I guess I can trace it back farther. When I just learned to read, I could read a campaign button that my dad had that said, I like Ike. That was Eisenhower's nickname.
0: Yeah. So your parents were politically active and
1: interested? Interested. Mm. And conservative.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so at, at Harvard, what did you study then? Economics. Economics. And uh, what was it about economics? Was there a certain sub-discipline that you were interested uh, my in? My
1: faculty advisor told me it'd be a good preparation for law school. Okay, yeah. So it just I didn't know what to major
0: in. <laughs> just kind of thinking about that end result and trying to work that way. Right. Yeah, so then what was it then that kind of got you, I think that one of the next major educational milestones was an MDiv at Westminster Seminary. Yes, yes. What kind of got you thinking that direction?
1: Um, freshman year, sophomore year, I majored in economics, took a lot of the required courses. Uh, sort of near the end of my sophomore year, I was president of the Harvard Christian Fellowship, Harvard Radcliffe Christian Fellowship, and I found I was, in a way, a pastor, maybe fulfilling a pastoral role for other students, to other students, and I, I loved it. I gravitated toward it. And I loved teaching Bible studies and participating in Bible studies. And uh, I felt more and more the Lord calling me to, uh, do a teaching ministry, hmm. uh, the example of my senior pastor at that time was very influential, Harold John Ockenge, O-C-K-E-N-G-A. He was pastor of Park Street Church in Boston, and he had a m- remarkable teaching ministry. Yeah. So so Dr. Ockenge, he had an earned PhD in philosophy, I believe. He would preach... 40-minute, 40 45-minute sermons, expository sermons Sunday morning and different sermons Sunday evening, often without notes. Mm. It was remarkable. And it had college students from around the Boston area coming and just listening eagerly to his teaching. And nearing the end of my sophomore year, I thought, maybe I could do that. Mm. And so I, uh, I thought the Lord wanted me to go to seminary I had almost finished the requirements for the economics major, so I finished those up in my junior year, but junior and senior year, I took two years of Hebrew, a year of Greek.
0: You just jumped right into the deep end with the languages. Right. (laughs) Was it it hard at all to give up on these political ideas that you, like the ambitions that you had, or was that like a pretty easy decision?
1: I haven't given up. (laughs) (laughs) I don't run, I haven't run for office, but... I've been active in writing about political issues.
0: Yeah, so you were able to continue to think deeply about those kinds of issues. While... Yes,
1: God's word says a lot about government. Mm. So, yeah, um, yeah, I've I've lectured on government-related topics in Poland, in Hungary, in the U.K., in Brazil, in Peru, in China. Mm. Well, not China, Hong Kong, mm. when it was still safe.
0: Yeah. Uh, You've been kind of skipping ahead in your your life. You were at Cambridge, uh, did more work there, doctoral work in Cambridge. Right. You served at TEDS, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, for two decades. And since 2001, you've been at Phoenix Seminary uh, Mm -hmm. as a professor there. What have you learned about the state of the evangelical church over those decades of teaching kind of the next generation of pastors in those different contexts? Do you feel optimistic about Where the American church is today, more encouraged than you did maybe at the beginning of your career, or where would you be at on that question?
1: Well, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. Part of it is observation of what has happened around the world through much of history, as church historians can tell and history of missions people can tell. The number of people who read their Bible daily and prayed, which is a good Thumbnail estimate of evangelical born again Christians was 3 or 4% of the population of the world. Then in 1950 or so, it uh, notched up to 5%, then 6%. Then as the years went by since 1950, basically during my lifetime, hmm. 7%, 8%, 9%, 10, 11 12 I don't know if it's 13 14% now, but it's the most growth in population, percentage of population, where genuine Christians, the greatest number, uh, greatest percentage that has ever happened in history. Hmm. It's it's, uh, all in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. I was going to say,
0: because that kind of maybe runs counter to our experience maybe here in the West or in the U.S., where it seems like we hear stats of declining church involvement, declining respect for the Bible, and what have you. But you're saying a lot of that's happening in other parts of the world. The global south, often as it's
1: referred to. Yes, and that's where the church is growing and experiencing remarkable revival, or has experienced.
0: Yeah, it's so good to keep that in mind as we think about where Christianity is at in the world.
1: Yes, but my conclusion from that is, will God pass by and not bring revival to North America and Europe hmm. and Australia? Hmm. I don't think so. I hope he won't. Hmm. I hope he will Bring revival to us as well. Yeah. So there's that. There's um, the Evangelical Theological Society. What did? I, what was I saying recently to you in conversation before we started?
0: Yeah, just that the growth of the the number of scholars who yeah, involved. Yeah. In
1: 1986, we met in Atlanta, and I think there were 325 or 350 people present. Now we have 2,600. Hmm. Part of it's more pastors coming and more seminary students. But another part of it is the amazing growth of evangelical scholarship increasing number of bible believing evangelical seminaries mm. when I went to seminary i had to decide on when I graduated from college in 1970 I decided on where to go to seminary and I think there were maybe five or six maybe seven solidly bible believing seminaries that I could choose from today I think there are seventeen or eighteen. Mm-hmm. That I could recommend a student go there and get a good education. Yeah, well, that's amazing, and I think it's possible that this is the Lord preparing for revival, preparing for a great incoming of massive numbers of conversions.
0: You, you served as president of the Evangelical Theological Society. I did in '99. Formerly. You know, as you think about, and obviously through your own writings and work, you have been kind of at the forefront of a lot of theological conversations that uh, the evangelical churches had over the last. Five decades yeah um, so as you think about the where the church has been over the last few decades and where what's on the horizon for us theologically uh, what would you recommend that pastors and scholars who love the Bible and love the church and want to see the church flourish in a healthy way love the gospel uh, what are the theological things that they should be focused on aware of study up on even to be prepared for what's coming
1: oh boy it's hard for me to know one, I, don't, I think there may not be one answer that fits all. Mm. The whole counsel of God is Acts 20, 26, and 27. Paul says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So all of the Bible is what we should teach and believe and follow. All of the Bible is what the enemy and the secular culture attacks. So mm. preach the word, teach it.
0: Are there certain areas of the Bible that you feel like are particularly under attack today that
1: the church needs to be reinforced in in some way? Teaching about the differences between men and women, Mm. that there are two genders in the human race, male and female, and they are immensely different, Mm. though we're both men and women equal in value and personhood before God. God uh, created us in his image, male and female, he created them in Genesis 128. 27, 28. And then he told them to have dominion over the earth. So maintaining the true distinctiveness of men and women, we have uh, different reproductive organs, we have different bone structure, we have hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of different patterns of wiring in our brains. So we approach situations and problems Mm. differently. Margaret, my wife, instinctively sees what's happening in situations much faster than I do. And I'm pulling into the $5 parking lot for a building we're going to go into. And she says, Wayne, all the people without PhDs are parking across the street in the free lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So, you're Those who know you know that you've been involved in the broader conversations about uh, biblical gender roles, the Bible's right. teaching on men and women, the differences right. there, complementarianism and what have you. But... Uh, Kind of going back in the heyday of some of those conversations when you guys were starting CBMW and issuing the the Danvers uh, statement on men and women's roles, could you ever have imagined where our culture would be at today, especially in light of the transgender lobby and the the transgender push that we see uh, in our culture today, where it's far beyond just gender roles now, there is a questioning of gender itself happening. What, could you have imagined that we'd be in this spot?
1: No, I'm I'm not good at predicting the future until it happens. Mm. But it's part of a larger, larger movement that I see as an attack by the enemy, by Satan and his forces <clears throat> to destroy hum, the human race. And one step in that direction is trying to make everything the same, mm. trying to say there's no difference between men and women. Everything women can do, men can do, and men can do, women can do. It's foolishness but it's part of the culture, and uh, so that's one area that needs to be taught, and related to it is principles for sexual, for morally right sexual conduct, no sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, mm. uh, and the church is under attack by the secular culture in that way, Yeah. and sexual immorality is viewed as romantic and positive by movies and TV, and so we face that question.
0: Yeah. You played a pretty important role in establishing the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Right. And, and then producing, as we said, the Danvers Statement, which was this kind of uh, summary of uh, what you see as the Bible's teaching on manhood and womanhood. Right. As you reflect back on the progress of that conversation in the evangelical church and kind of where things have landed today, would you say that... Uh, you all were successful in what you were trying to accomplish in, in starting that council, a council on publishing on this topic over the years. Do you look back and say, yeah, we did what we wanted to do, we accomplished that, or do you feel like something different?
1: Well, um, I feel that God gave us much grace in that whole denominations committed to either the Denver Statement on Male, male Female Roles or something very similar to it in wording. Southern Baptist Convention, which is huge, the Presbyterian Church in America, Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, thousands of independent Bible churches, and um, seminaries, uh, a number of seminaries, Westminster, Reformed, all the Southern Baptist seminaries, Missouri Synod Lutheran seminaries, Concordia in Fort Wayne, Concordia in St. Louis. There are others, but it has been a Mark of faithfulness to Scripture to commit to a complementarian position on male and female roles. If I go to another city, I'm out of town on a Sunday, and I want to visit a church, I look on the website, and if it's all men elders, I think they're standing against the culture, Mm. and they're going to be faithful to Scripture in other areas. But if they're men and women elders or women pastors, I know that they've moved away from Mm. following the whole Bible. And more compromise is uh, is uh, coming soon. So, in the midst of all
0: of the conversations and and arguments and debates and controversy mm-hmm. surrounding this issue over the years, have you been able to hold on to relationships, even friendships, with egalitarians who, who you disagree with on this issue, but nevertheless, you know, you would want to say, no, what we are, we are fellow brothers and sisters, and and I appreciate them and respect what they're doing.
1: Well, with some. Um, Uh, Craig Keener is one. He's been a friend for years. He's an egalitarian, past president of the ETS, prolific scholar, but the nicest guy you'll ever meet. (laughs) Um, And uh, he's been a friend. Walt Kaiser and um, Grant Osborne, while I was at Trinity, for instance, were egalitarian, mildly egalitarian, not militantly. And uh, we maintained genuine friendship throughout the time I was at, the 20 years I was at Trinity. Walt Kaiser... Wasn't there the whole time, but when he was. Well, and even after he left. So yes, with some, with others, no, there hasn't been a, well, no. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not that there's been hostility, but there's been no desire for friendship or relationship. Mm.
0: Let's talk about, uh, again, the book that you're best known for, Your Systematic Theology. You first published it in 1994, which by my count, somewhere around almost three decades ago, uh, What led you to write that book? What was it that kind of prompted you to undertake what I'm sure for many would feel like a huge, daunting
1: task? The reason was students couldn't understand Berkhoff.
0: Mm, Louis Berkhoff.
1: Louis Berkhoff's Systematic Theology, a marvelous book, but some problems with it. Number one, it had untranslated Greek, Hebrew, French, German, Latin, and maybe a little Dutch. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, and students found it very difficult. And the the English words in it were, were sometimes theological terms that were unfamiliar to students. So I started teaching from it as so I thought it was an excellent book, and um, it was just hard for students. The other thing that Berkhof did was to save space. I think, or word count, he would list Bible verses to prove a point of doctrine but give only the verse reference and not spell out the verse, not mm. not not print it out. Which, so,
0: which probably means people don't ever look them
1: up. They don't, so they don't get the teaching of Scripture. And Scripture is powerful. It changes people's hearts and minds. So I uh, thought we have to have something that people can understand and something that will give the quotation of the verse itself, not just the Bible reference. Because what if he says, uh, Ephesians four twelve. I'm just me, ra- randomly. Yeah. Uh, who knows what that says?
0: Yeah. Right. Most of us are not going to know most of those references.
1: All of us are not going to know most of those <laughs> references.
0: Some people, I'm always surprised at their their uh, their memory for pulling that stuff out.
1: Yeah. Maybe Vern Poitier said Westminster <laughs> Seminary, but but not normal people.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, so the although book...
1: I, I could say when I got to Harvard as a freshman nineteen sixty six. The Dean's office had assigned me a roommate named Jerry Brock from Fresno, California. He had memorized all of Matthew and all of Romans. Oh wow. For Youth for Christ quiz contests. So I'd say Matthew Jerry, what's Matthew 18 for? And he would go... <laughs> you see, see the filing cabinet in his yeah, brain? Yeah. yeah, but that's unusual.
0: Yeah. So, so your systematic theology, last I saw, has sold over a half a million copies. Maybe that's out of date at this point. Uh, over 800,000. 800,000 to date. Did you imagine it would have that resonance worldwide when you first wrote it? No. Well, what were you thinking? What was the original print run, or what were you thinking was going to be the, the impact of
1: the book? I thought it would be an alternative that people could understand. I wrote it for first year seminary students. But I imagined my hypothetical audience as I was writing, I imagined my parents were visiting in the back of the classroom and I wanted them to be able to understand it. Mm. My dad went to college for two years and then went into business. My mom didn't go to college, but they were lifelong Christians. Yeah. I wanted it to be understandable to for to ordinary Christian readers. And then Burkhoff didn't give any application to life he would just give the doctrine and be done with it and yet i thought even the most theological books in the new testament like romans or hebrews those books have a lot of application to life ephesians even though they're really rich theology and so if the bible doesn't teach theology without application to life neither should we Mm. so i tried to emphasize at the end of each chapter questions for personal application and um and I put a hymn in because I would always begin class with a hymn. And the Lord has blessed it in a way that or has used it to draw people closer to himself in a way that I never expected.
0: Do you often hear from people who have read the book and found it helpful or it's you know, impacted them in some way? How often do you get those kinds of responses?
1: I can't walk 20 feet down the hallway here at ETS without somebody stopping me.
0: Huh, That's amazing. What, what, what does that feel like? today? I mean, you've you've been living in that, you know, with that for probably a couple decades at least now of of people, uh, so many people having benefited from the book. How does that impact you today?
1: It just makes me thankful for God's, for the privilege of being able to do something that brought benefit to God's people and that he has blessed it. Mm. I'm just thankful for that. Mm. I don't want to do anything that would dishonor the Lord and Make the book not profitable for people.
0: Yeah. So another thing that you have been involved with that has similarly had a huge impact around the world is the creation of the ESV, the English Standard Version. And you served on the, continue to serve on the ESV translation oversight committee. How did you first get connected to the work on the ESV?
1: I called Lane Dennis, the president of Crossway, and said, Do you think the National Council of Churches would give us permission? to revise the Revised Standard Version. And he said John Piper had called him recently with the same idea.
0: <laughs> Have you guys conspired on that ahead of time? No. No, that was just a providential, both of you had this idea.
1: Yes, but when I my first teaching responsibility was at Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota, 77 to 81. For two of those years, John Piper was in the same department. So we talked a lot. Um, and we both use the revised standard version as our personal Bible. Mm. How old were both
0: of you at that time? Do you have general
1: sense? Well, I was born in '48, so in '78 I was 30 years old. Mm. And John was probably 32, a little younger. Yeah. No, he's 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 older. Oh, he's he's older. He's maybe two years older than I am. Okay. We used to argue a lot <laughs> <laughs> when we were young faculty members about hermeneutics and how to get the right. Meaning from the author's intention,
0: so not just specific interpretations, but actually how to do hermeneutics correctly. Yes. What were the What were the battle lines there? I can't remember.
1: <laughs> I could remember if I tried. Yeah, but it had to do with the difference between a book that's merely a human book and the human author's intention is decisive, and a book like the Bible, which is unique and has a dual authorship, mm. and can have meaning that the original human author didn't understand or intend.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so both you and him have this idea for a ne- the need for a new translation, a revision of the RSV, and you, you call Lane, and then how did you get roped in? Were you always wanting to be involved, or was it more of, hey, you should go do this?
1: He said he would contact the National Council of Churches and see what they would resp- how they would respond. And he came back to me after a while and said they responded that they wouldn't allow us to have permission to use the Revised Standard Version as a basis for a new translation. So they said no. They said no. And then I said, could I try once more? And Lane, who was president of Crossway at the time, said, yes, that's fine. You have to contact David Lull, who's in charge of permissions for the National Council of Churches. He's in New York City. So I put it off and put it off and then um, one day I think it was a Thursday I didn't have any teaching responsibilities at Trinity and I just felt the Lord wanted me to work on this so I spent seven hours just entirely focused on writing a letter to the National Council of Churches telling them what kind of translation we would do and uh, explaining in detail what we would do with the number of verses hmm. and um, it was a It was maybe a five- or six- or seven-page letter. When I finished it, I called David Lull, this man at the National Council of Churches in New York City. It was a quarter to five in New York City. And um, could I send him a a follow-up letter that Lane Dennis had uh, given me permission to write? He said, yes, you've got 15 minutes, and I'm leaving the country. (laughs) So I faxed him the letter. Before
0: 5 p.m., you got it over there.
1: They were interested. I explained to him who would be involved in the translation and the kind of translation we'd want to do. We'd change Isaiah 7.14 to, A virgin shall conceive, not a young woman. Uh, we'd change four verses in the New Testament to put the word propitiation back in the Bible, which is important in the doctrine of the atonement. We would change Psalm 45, From your divine throne to your throne, O God. And uh, I faxed the letter, and they came back and said, they were interested, and so Lane Dennis and Crossway leadership began discussions with the National Council of Churches, and the lawyer on bo- lawyers on both sides were involved in the c- contract negotiations. They couldn't come to agreement in the details, and finally they ended up saying the revision would be done in accordance with the principles laid out in Wayne Grudem's letter to David Lull on March such of 1996. Such
0: so that became kind of the, 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 the core document that would became the
1: legal the docu- legal basis on which the translation was done. Oh wow. So that letter became the c- the contractual basis on which the ESV was carried out. And there was one sentence at the last page that said and any additional changes that we think exegetically defensible or something to that effect mm. which gave us complete freedom <laughs> and we uh, ended up changing I think by one count I think we ended up changing 60,000 words or 8% of the RSV text. Mm. So 92% of it is the Revised Standard Version, which is a revision of the American Standard Version in 1901, which is a revision of the King James Version. So the ESV is a direct descendant of the King James Version. It's the great-grandson. Yeah, we we
0: often talk about it being in the the legacy or in the the stream Uh, of the King James. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And how involved were you in assembling the team that would eventually actually do the translation work?
1: Very. It was a conversation between Lane Dennis and me, what do you think about adding J.I. Packer? <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> he was teaching at Trinity at the time. Was he the first name you guys
1: added to the list? No, um, Vern Poitras. Mm. And John Piper decided he couldn't take the time from his pastoral responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So he was. He gave us comments throughout, but he wasn't actually on the translation committee. Yeah, uh, With J.I. Packer, he was teaching a Trinity at Trinity on an adjunct basis or a visiting professor. And I went to his apartment and began to talk to him. I said, would you be interested in preparing, working on an evangelical revision of the Revised Standard Version? And he didn't pause a second. He said, yes. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, he, he's on record for saying, I think he, in a video we shot with him once, that he kind of considers his work on the ESV was uh, the most significant work that he did in his whole ministry and career.
1: Yeah, I think all of us feel that way mm. who we're involved. Uh, the surprise, We knew that he would be great on, English, on the English language and on theology. What we didn't know, the hidden surprise, was his knowledge of Greek is phenomenal. It mm. was phenomenal. He's passed away now. But he had read classics at Oxford, which meant, number one, when he was 18 years old, he was among the best Greek and Latin scholars in England to get into Oxford. Number two, he spent three years translating Greek into English, English into Greek, Greek into Latin, Latin into Greek. And um, his instinct, his what I call, it was similar to a native speaker's instinct for the language. Although we had five members of the committee who had PhD level competence in Greek, his instinctive sense of the nuances of the language was better than all of ours, Mm. at least in my opinion.
0: Yeah. So let's skip forward then a few years to, so the ESV is published first in 2001. Two thousand eight, Crossway releases the ESV Study Bible. Yes, um, one of our best-selling Bibles, uh, again known around the world. Uh, And you served as an important important role in that project. How would you describe general editor? Yeah. So, what did that look like on a day-to-day basis?
1: Um, The comments on each book of the Bible were done by people who had usually people who had published a commentary on those on that book, uh, but specialists in each book. So the Notes on 1 Corinthians were done by Frank Thielman at Beeson, a really well-respected New Testament scholar. Then it came to Tom Schreiner, the New Testament editor, and he would make comments and suggest revisions. And then when he was satisfied with it, it would come to me as the general editor. And then Tom Schreiner and I were supposed to come to agreement on what changes we wanted, and we worked together well, and it usually came out just fine. Mm except when we came to 1 Peter 3, the discussion of the, Christ preached to the spirits, spirits in prison, the notoriously <laughs> difficult passage, and he has the wrong understanding of it. <laughs> so you guys came to a bit of an impasse? Well, we went back and forth and back and forth on the wording, and we were limited in length. Finally, we ended up saying, we can each have, I don't know, 273 words or something like that. Yeah.
0: Well, that, that's one of the distinctives, I think, of the ESV Study Bible is that so often in passages like that where there yeah. are sort of competing interpretations, uh, the notes will present that and may, maybe still right. say we, we think this is the right one. But I think many have found that very
1: helpful fac- feature. Right. And in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, Christ preaching to the spirits in prison. You have Tom Schreiner's view and my view, and they're both presented with equal number of words. (laughs) Very intentionally. And then with the Old Testament, the same procedure happened, but it would go to Jack Collins, see John Collins Mm. at Covenant Seminary in, in St. Louis, and then it would come to me.
0: Yeah. Maybe as a last couple of questions,
1: what does a typical week look like for you these days? Well, I'm... At my request, I'm down to teaching just one class a year at Phoenix Seminary, but I'm still involved. I'm a member of the faculty and feel like I'm just a, very much a part of things. Mm. But um, I've gone down to one class per year, and uh, they're usually required the required class theology one, theology three, and Christian ethics, and I do one of those per year. So, um, what does a typical day look like? I get up and Three things have to happen. I have to eat breakfast. I have to go walk for half an hour and partly jog and partly walk. Outside? Yes. Yeah. But before 7 in the morning in summer (laughs) in Arizona. Before it
0: gets too hot.
1: Right. And I need to spend time in the Word, praying and reading the Bible. And if those three things get done, then the rest of the day is work. Mm. Mm. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk
0: about your wife, Margaret. Margaret. Yeah. As we think about your life and, and all that God has done, in, through you and your life, how would you summarize her role in all that you have
1: done? Well, first of all, I have to say that when I, when my parents moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, when I was in eight, just before our eighth grade started, um, I came to junior high, and there was a seventh grade girl that it was very interesting to me. <laughs> she was twelve, and I was thirteen and we didn't start dating until high school but god gave me a special mm. affection for margaret out of all the all the girls i knew and um, i had a sense that we'd be together she had um, a number of boyfriends or potential boyfriends but i won uh,
0: so she so she didn't have that initial sense quite as quickly as you did oh it
1: was I think she did, <laughs> because she would break dates and go out with me. <laughs> so I think God God gave us that affection for yeah. each other.
0: And, yeah, so then what, what impact has she had on, on you over the years? Well,
1: she prays for me. She is a good counselor, very wise. Mm. And she, um, she cares for the household and the children when the children were at home mm. and uh, enables me to have freedom to work on the writing project that is underway.
0: Does she ever read any of your writing projects before you send them off to the press? Or? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> you would like her to, huh? No, I mean, it's
1: just, I would appreciate her comments, but she hears me teach in uh, adult Bible classes and yeah. conferences. and
0: She gets enough Wayne Grudem at home. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll happen once or twice a day where I'll walk into the other room where Margaret is and say, could you please pray for me? I'm stuck on this paragraph or this verse or hmm. something or um I can't quite get going on this well, my ETS paper that I presented this morning hmm. I started to work on it started to work on it started to work on it finally I went and said Margaret please pray for me I'm not getting a sense of how this paper should develop and then what do you know it came out just but, fine
0: yeah so her prayers have been a, a very help. important yeah. yeah maybe as a, a final question as you Reflect back in your life all that God has has done in and through you over the years, and I know you're a humble man. You recognize His His activity in and through what you've accomplished. Yeah. How would you want people to remember you?
1: Someone who loved Jesus and loved His Word. sorry as as someone who loved Jesus and loved his word Mm -hmm. and sought to teach it faithfully Mm -hmm. that's about it yeah
0: yeah well thank you again so much for talking with us today and and reflecting on your life and ministry and, and what God has done, uh, we, we've all benefited from it in so many ways.
1: Oh, it's been a privilege.
0: That was Wayne Grudem on his life and ministry. Find out how you can get 30% off the many books he has written and edited with Crossway by visiting crossway.org. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.